This is episode number 54 with Eddie Stern. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back. I've got such a fun and interesting show lined up for you today. Joining us is Eddie Stern, who's a yoga teacher, author, and lecturer from New York City. Now, when Eddie started practicing yoga, it was not mainstream in the United States. And he went from being a punk rocker to a yogi to teaching yoga and has actually taught celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow and Madonna. And he's on the show today to talk about his book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga, which examines in clear and simple language the underlying neurophysiological mechanisms that make yoga an effective practice. We also talk about his app that he created called The Breathing App, which ultimately helps balance the nervous system to help improve your sleep and reduce stress and anxiety. So we do cover a lot in today's conversation and whether you are new to yoga, considering starting a practice, or consider yourself a yogi, I know you're gonna love today's conversation. So let's get into the show. Hi, Eddie, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure. Um, so I loved your book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Can Transform Your Life. Um, I can't wait to dive into it. I went through it so many times. It's one of those great books that you read through it, you earmark it, and then you go back to your favorite parts that you want to go into deeper. So I look forward to getting into that. But I'd like to start the interview by asking my guests to take us into their stories a bit, because you started practicing yoga before it was mainstream in the U.S. So I'm curious, how did you discover yoga? And what was it about it that prompted you to go to India to find a guru and go so much deeper into the practice? Can you take us into your story? Well, sure. Um, I, I mean, I think the basic answer behind why I started doing yoga was simply because I was on a quest. And I didn't really know at the time when I first did yoga the definition of what that quest was. I just knew that I was searching for meaning. And I wasn't interested in the things that at that time in the 1980s were expected of a, a person who was 17 or 18, which was go to college, get a degree. That's how you get a job. And that <laughs> didn't interest me terribly because um, I wasn't clear on what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I wanted to be an artist or I wanted to be a musician. And the path of school didn't speak to me all that readily. And um, as I mentioned in the book, when I was 15, I had an English teacher named Mrs. Jane Benditson. And in her English class, the first year I had her, we read Siddhartha, and she said to us, the three most important questions you can ask yourself in your life are, who am I, what am I doing here, and what do I do next? 
And that became like a really defining point of my life, like because I didn't know who I was or what I was doing there. And that those questions really made me think and they stuck with me. And, um, and, you know, and as I've said, also, that's really the only thing I remember from high school and the only thing I need to remember, because that's um, basically all I've been doing since then. So I think that the the hearing of those questions and the thinking about it impelled me to think about my life on a deeper level. And that thinking about my life on a deeper level was the thing that eventually led me to yoga. Back then, yoga was only done as a spiritual practice. There was no yoga fitness industry to speak of at all. Uh, it was only you did yoga because you were, you know, doing a spiritual thing. That's it. Wow. Okay. So that's so cool. And so I'm going to jump a little bit ahead. I had another question for you, but this question of who am I? I think we're all on that quest. I mean, I know that different points in my life, that question just is kind of screaming in my head. So when you went on that journey, did you discover that answer or is it a lifelong quest? How do you view that question? Who am I? Well, I, I think that for definitely everybody is on that quest one way or another, whether they recognize it or not. Um, when and And also, even the people who don't really recognize right away that maybe that's the quest that they're on, they're fulfilling that in other types of peripheral ways, like the jobs that they take or the friends that they have or the music they listen to or the you know, food that they eat. All are identity mm-hmm. modalities. Um, you know, I'm a vegan, I'm a paleo, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a carnivore, I'm doing the lion diet, whatever it must be. <laughs> you know, all of these things are um, they're clubs that we join. In, in an effort to belong, because we are social beings, and an effort to not only belong, but to know who we are within the group that we're belonging to. And that's important. So knowing where we stand is, is crucial for confidence and for security. These are some of the drives that we have as human beings. Like in our brainstem, 320 million years of evolution have said to us, you know, survive. And in order to survive, you have to know your surroundings and cooperate with your surrounding and have them cooperate with you too for mutual survival. So we move towards safety, we move away from danger, and in the moving towards safety, we move towards groups, which will help nurture us and protect us and look out for us. And that's who our groups are. Some people like to call them tribes, you know? That's that's who we hang out with because we feel like, here are the people that will look out for me. Here are the people that have my back. And we naturally gravitate. And that's part of a, an impulse we have within us, a deep-rooted survival instinct. And all of this is part of self-knowing. You know, where am I within the group? How do I interact with the group? And what value do I bring to this group? So knowing who I am isn't an individual thing. It's not a self-centered thing. It's not like, oh, now I know who I am, so that's me, and I'll, you know, you know, like be the best you you can be. Like it's not that kind of a thing. It's that the, that the who am I actually is not separate from everything else, that the who I am is integrated in existing in this moment with everything else that exists. And so that I'm not a separate individual. The I is not sort of this uh, isolated, independent entity that has um, total free agency to manifest whatever they want. You know, we 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 are not the masters of all of our outcomes. We are not the rulers of all of the agency that we think we can impose on the world or over our lives. 
So the recognizing of uh, or the recognition of these facts is part of the undoing of a false narrative that allows us to be present and existing cooperatively and independently with the world around us. That And that's called living in harmony. Yeah, no, so this is so good, but so then it just makes me question. So I heard two important things. One is that by coming into our tribes, the question then that leaves me with is then do we have a harder time knowing who I am because we're trying to integrate versus be able to listen within? And then the second part, though, then is, um, you know, but is it that unity that actually is who we are? So I don't know. It's a little, um, can you go a little deeper? Cause it's so, sure. I'm so fascinated by this. Yeah. And the thing also is that, um, you know, the, um, the gravitating towards groups of people or, or the tribes is not the answer to knowing who we are. It's what we do when we don't know who we are. That's what I wondered. Who's... Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but that's what, I, yes, that is our way of trying to find it. Exactly. No, it's fine to interrupt. Don't worry. So when we know who we are, everyone is our tribe. Like the universe is our tribe when we know who we are. But when we're not really too sure, but we're seeking to find out who we are, then we go towards the groups. We go into identity politics. You know, right. We go to these identity things. And so that's what it says in Yoga Sutras. It says that avidya is not knowing who we are. And this is the first problem that leads to suffering and leads to ignorance and leads to uh, likes and dislikes and clinging and everything. And then if we, if we know who we are, it solves all the other problems. If we don't know who we are, we create a false narrative. And that false narrative is going to lead us to identify with particular likes and dislikes, which are going to be what we find in groups of people. Um, here's a group of people who only likes eating one particular food and is against everybody else who eats differently. Um, these are how we set ourselves against the world and against differences in an effort to try to know who we are on a superficial level. So the knowing who we are on a deep level is, number one, I'm part of everything that's happening and everything that's happening is part of me. And number two, that the sense of who I am is just awareness. Like, who am I? What's the answer to that question? Well, on one level, from a yogic perspective, we are awareness. We are mm -hmm. beings that are aware beings. Um, in fact, we are being itself because we exist and we exist in this field of awareness. So we have the potential for knowing, for cognizing things. That's the field of awareness or the field of consciousness. And that's mm -hmm. who we are underneath the shifting identities. So the search basically leads us through all the different layers of identity, all the different narratives until we're aware of the one who is aware of the changing narratives. We're aware of that presence, which is aware of observing and knowing. And then when we become aware of awareness and then we just rest in awareness, then that is who we are. That's the unity. That's being part of the collective consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Being with it one. So when you went on that journey to India, did you start feeling more of a connection to being able to answer who am I? Were you starting to create that level of awareness that allowed you to be able to come to an answer? Well, um, no. W what it did was going to India created a new identity for me. And then I went from being, you know, a punk rocker or a goth to being yoga guy, you know. It was your new tribe. Yeah, it was a new identity. It was, I'm not going to wear black anymore. I'm going to wear all white. I'm going <laughs> to grow my hair really long. 
Um, and, um, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, live really simply and I'm just going to listen to this new type of music. And, um, that was that. So yoga became a new identity for me. And, um, and it, you know, the spiritual identities sometimes are even harder to undo than regular mundane, I'm a punk rocker identities because, right. uh, you start thinking that you know better than other people. And so that's what definitely what happened to me. And it's what happened, what I saw happening to a lot of the people I was hanging around with too, that there was a little bit of a holier than thou spiritual uh, idea that was resonating above the flocks. And one of my best friends at that time, uh, who was actually Moby, he, as I was getting into a yoga lifestyle, and I had already been vegetarian for a few years and vegan, he was really into Christian youth. And so we would debate between Christ and yoga, and we thought we were better than everyone who was, you know, still <laughs> enmeshed in the world of whatever. And, um, and it was pretty funny. We were, we were really stupid, and we still are. But, um, but at least we can look back at it now and go, oh, my God, you know. I think part of gaining wisdom is knowing how little you really know. And that is a, a good place to be like, you know, you just can say, I really don't have a clue. Here's a little bit of what I understand, but I could be completely wrong is a, is a, is a much better place to be. than I know what's up. And if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. And that's how fundamentalists are. And so, uh, I was, a definitely, I was a yoga fundamentalist for quite a while. And then it's shifted, though. Is that through the practice of yoga itself, creating the awareness? Is that what led you there? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that yoga is just a tool, and I, I think it doesn't always work. It all depends on how you use it and what you're using it for. Um, yoga, postures and breathing and all that can help make you feel more at home in your body, and it can give you a, a more balanced nervous system. But um, it doesn't always give you wisdom or insight. And also, if you're really working on your body a lot and you're just obsessed with asanas, then what happens is you get good at those things, but there are other things that you don't focus on that you don't get good at, like maybe your emotions or integrating your past or your memories or, you know, dealing with um, honesty or, or whatever it might be. Um, so we can we can stop listening to the things we need to listen to internally because we don't want to listen to those things. And at the same time, we can get really good at doing something else like chanting mantras or doing postures or going on retreats and, and excel at that um, and be able to sit for hours upright in meditation. Uh, but that's all we become good at. And we stop doing the harder work sometimes. So that's why I think yoga is good, but it doesn't do everything. Meditation is good, but it doesn't do everything. Uh, the rest of the stuff we need to do is uh, aware social behavior, um, work on ourselves and look at the ugly stuff that we don't like. And um, that's, um, you know, sometimes that takes quite often what that takes really is people. Uh, it takes someone to say to you, you know, you, you're actually a bit of an asshole or what you said was really mean or, you know, or you're, um, you know, you just think for yourself, even though you're seem to be doing all this spiritual stuff or, and, and 
you know, it's kind of like um, uh, my friend, Dr. Swoboda, Robbie Swoboda, said that whenever you take an Ayurvedic dosha test, like in a book or in a magazine, you should never do it yourself. You should have your like husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or best friend do it for you because they're going to know with a little bit of objectivity what your real flaws are. And we'll just fill out all the good stuff. So if it's the choice between, you know, laid back personality or, you know, gets uptight over small things, we're going to choose a really laid back personality. That's one of the choices. <laughs> so funny. We can't trust ourselves um, to all the time to, to lay it out. So I think that yoga is really good, but it doesn't do everything. Um, and one of the things that has uh, brought me to the place where I am today um, is number one time, uh, age, um, becoming a father, um, dealing with just the ups and downs of life. And little by little, you start to soften when you see the different types of suffering that exist all over the world and recognition of, um, you know, the, the smallness of some of your problems in relationship to the bigness of how they could be. Um, and, you know, caring for other people and, and all that really human stuff is where, you know, if we pay attention to it, that's where we start to learn about how we exist within all of this. Um, so I am, I love yoga. I teach yoga. I do yoga every day. And, um, but I, I would say that even if I didn't do yoga again ever, um, or meditate ever again, I, it would not be an impediment to the journey that I continue to be on, which is to, you know, be established in, myself to be honest about who I am to to experience myself on a deep level but also to like you know to remember and learn how to love people and how to be thoughtful and not put myself first and and really what it means to extend you know beyond uh, my needs and desires and wants um, uh, to continue to learn how to listen to other people and listen to other people's pains or you know, criticisms of me or, or whatever it might be. And, and to be honest and be with that, you don't need yoga for all that. Um, you just need to, to be willing. And that's really what I think the name of the game is, you know, if this is the journey you want to be on, then you need to be willing to face all the stuff that comes up and, um, and hang out with it and just stick there with it until, uh, it's no longer, an impediment to you, but you've grown from it, you've learned and, and, and then you go on to the next thing. So, so beautiful. Thank you. That was really profound. And it makes me think. So sometimes when you're in those places of um, discomfort within, it's like an invitation to, to continue to open and to expand that awareness. Yeah. And there are a lot of people. I mean, I, there are a ton of people who are really doing that work who do yoga also. So I'm not trying to belittle anyone, anyone's journey. I'm just saying from my perspective, what I've observed over the past 30 years uh, or more, that's like, that's where I am with it right now. Yeah, that's beautiful because it's just an evolutionary process of us as humans having, right, souls having a human experience. So I love that. Um, so Eddie, how do you define yoga? What does it mean to you? Well, I mean, uh, there are a lot of definitions of yoga, and I 
prefer the definition of Patanjali, which is that yoga is a special type of concentration where you become, uh, where the thing you're concentrating on, you basically become as if one with it. Um, so uh, the word unionist yoga is, is the popular definition. And that was sort of a later a description of what yoga meant. Uh, earlier times, yoga was used as control of the sense organs, like in the Kata Upanishad, uh, things like that. But Patanjali specifically uh, said that yoga is the, uh, he gave a little bit of an equation. He said, yoga is chitta vritti nirodaha. And nirodaha means either the evaluation or the selective elimination of. Vritti means activities in. And chitta is the field of the mind, which is where we process information. Um, and there are all sorts of seeds of, uh, or impressions of experience that are resting in the mind. Some of them are dormant, some are latent, some are expressing themselves. And we need to deal with all those things that are in there. And what forms do they take? They take the forms of sensation, information, feelings, thoughts, memories, whether they're traumatic memories or joyful memories. All these seeds are in this field of chitta. And so now what we need to do is we need to begin to clear this field because within that field and all the activities is where our definitions lie. Our definitions of who do I think I am? What's my narrative right now? What's my changing narrative? So we begin to clean up the field um, through Nidodaha, which is evaluating those activities, seeing which ones are false, seeing which ones have no substance, seeing that sometimes they arise seemingly out of nowhere, but they have almost no content to them. And so not getting stuck on those particular activities or vritis, and then eliminating the ones that are not helpful and keeping the ones that are helpful. So some vrittis or activities that are helpful will be things like um, the memory of I am on a search or I'm on a quest to know who I am. The memory of, you know, I should be listening carefully. I should be paying attention. Uh, I should be present. So people say, oh, you know, oh, you keep the thought in your mind of wanting to be present, for example. Um, in yoga, Memory is the thing that helps you do that. Mm. So when we're meditating, if our mind wanders, one reason for that is our memory isn't strong enough to keep saying this is where you want your mind to be. So it's when your memory is weak, the mind can go wherever it wants to. But if the memory is strong, your memory will fix your awareness in the place where you want it to be. Then when your mind wanders, it's because you've forgotten where you want your mind, where you want your mind to be. So it's a little bit of a different way of looking at how the mind works. Is that when my mind is strong, I'll remember where I want to be. When my mind is not strong, meaning my memory is not strong, my mind will go wherever it wants because I forgot to keep it in the present. And so memory, the strengthening of memory, becomes very important. So in the field of chitta, we have all these memories, and these are called samskaras, and we can. So a samskara is a memory or an impression, and we mm. can choose the memories that we want to have as predominant in this field. So let's say I want the a samskara or the memory of presence or awareness or love or compassion to me the most predominant thing in the field of my mind, then I meditate on compassion, I meditate on love, I meditate on awareness, being aware of awareness. And then slowly, 
this type of memory, this type of impression that I'm placing in the mind becomes the predominant force in my mind. And then the other ones that I don't need to have there, like comparison, judgment, criticism, shame, guilt, all of these others, I'm not feeding those. So they become weaker. And as they become weaker, they begin to dry up. And after they dry up, then they, you know, they come to the point where they don't sprout anymore. So mm -hmm. it's not that you've actually tried to do anything to these other impressions, like let's just take criticism or judgment. You're not actually saying, I won't be judgmental, I won't be judgmental. You do this other thing where you plant positive seeds, they become stronger, the negative ones become weaker, then you can evaluate them with a clear mind and go, I'm, this is not my default mode anymore. I don't need to be using this mechanism to relate to the world. And little by little, you put that away. And then one day you feel like, oh, wow, I don't have that in me anymore. And it's not because you tried to conquer it. It's because you didn't feed it um, with your awareness. Okay, so the nidaha as elimination or evaluation means that I am feeding the type of memory impressions that I want to have predominant, and I'm not feeding the ones that are not helpful to me. And so they eventually evaporate. And so you continue to do that until uh, the main impression that you're placing in your mind is the nirodaha of, or sorry, the, um, the vritti, the impression of nirodaha which is the elimination of anything superfluous except for awareness. And so any arising thought, you don't engage with it and you apply nirodaha or the elimination of it until nirodaha becomes your only vritti which is occurring. And then when that becomes established, no more thoughts are arising in the mind, only awareness. And then that is basically described in the third verse, where Swarupe Avastanam, Tadadrashtahu, then the seer, then the awareness, Swarupe Avastanam, Avastanam dwells in Swarupa, in its own form, as itself. So awareness dwells as awareness, rather than the changing forms of the activities. Um, so that, that for me is what yoga means. I love it. That was your question. Yeah, no, I love it. And um, you practice Ashtanga yoga. Can you explain what that is and how the eight limbs are connected to that and what that means? Sure. Well, the Ashtanga means literally means eight limbs. Oh, and, I mean that. Yeah. And it, <laughs> this is the teachings of Patanjali and other sages. Uh, the first Ashta means eight, Anga means limbs. And of the, of the eight, the first one is called Yama which uh, are the are, are social interactions. How do we treat people? And there are five different ways. In the earlier text, there are 10. In the later text, there, there, like potentially, there are five. Uh, the first one is non-harm, meaning acting with kindness. The second one is um, honesty. You know, t it translated quite often as telling the truth, but telling the truth, you know, has to be done in a way which is, you know, Sometimes we tell the, the truth of what we're feeling in the moment, which might be anger or might be something which is, you know, causes harm to another person. Um, but honesty is a, a different kind of truth telling where you're expressing your inner feelings of something to someone in a way that they can maybe hear you rather than in, you know, in a, 
and America particularly, were very fond of the hard truth. You know, and I think it was Mark Twain who said that I think that the people who are more who are fond of the hard truth are quite often more fond of being hard than they are truthful. <laughs> uh, something like that. So um, the brutal truth, it was the brutal truth. So we're really into that in America and it's painful. And in fact, this has given rise to um, the trolling culture and the social media culture who you know, in the, the call out culture and the cancel culture and all that is like, um, you know, this is people who feel like they have any kind of platform to say anything they want to, no matter how mean, hurtful or unconstructive it might be to dealing with difficult and painful issues. So that kind of brutal truth, like, I'm sorry, it's not helpful. Maybe mm -hmm. on the rare occasion it is. So yoga says like that's not going to be super helpful, but let's work on honesty and feelings and things like that. Um, the next after that is not stealing, meaning don't steal other people's thoughts or ideas, or if you use their thoughts and ideas or words, credit them, and don't steal the property of other people either. Uh, after that is brahmacharya, which either means celibacy or sexual responsibility, depending on your station in life. It can also mean to not objectify people for your own gratification. And then the last of those is aparegraha, which means not being greedy, basically. Um, so greedy for what? For um, thinking that if you get the things you see around them, they're going to make you more full or whole or complete than you really are. So those mm -hmm. are the first five parts of the first limb of yoga. Um, how am I, I going to interact with the world? That's the hardest thing. Like, you know, if you can, if you can sort of incorporate even one or two of these into your daily life, you will become a better person. We will become better people just by incorporating one or two of them, like for a little while every day, we will become definitely better people. So they're quite profound. Um, the next is called Niyama and Niyama are the disciplines we follow with regards to ourselves. Um, and so these include regular, first of all, cleanliness, taking a shower, um, keeping our teeth clean so we maintain the body and we're presentable to the public. Uh, the next after that is contentment, that you're content with whatever comes to you or whatever doesn't come to you, you will be content. Doesn't mean that you don't apply effort. It means that you are okay if the thing you're chasing after, you don't quite attain it. After that comes practice, the discipline of daily practice. And then after that comes the discipline of evaluation, self-evaluation, and also reading of sacred texts and chanting of mantras. And then the one that comes after that is surrender, either to God if you are mm -hmm. theistic or to um, just a sense of the sacred if you're non-theistic or to the unknown but uh, this goes back to the earlier point we were talking about of a sense of agency, that we are not the master of the outcomes of all of our actions, maybe some of them, um, but not all of them. Otherwise, every single thing we did in our life would work perfectly. And, and that doesn't seem to happen for most people. There's always, there's always going to be ups and downs. So the surrender of your actions with, of not knowing the outcome, um, but doing the you know, the action sort of as an offering to the unknown or to God is Ishwara Pranidhana. So those are the first two limbs. Number one, how do I relate to the world? Number two, 
how am I relating to my inner being um, into my into my discipline for practice then after that comes asanas these are the yoga poses uh, these are important for creating stability in the body nervous system and mind and then after that comes the breathing practices these are important this is called pranayama and these are important for balancing the branches of the nervous system and also for beginning to master some of our autonomic functions so heart rate respiration blood pressure digestion sleep sexuality um all in all of these types of things are autonomic functions we don't have to think about them for them to occur yet um the yogi said there's something in there for us to become intimate with uh, in a way that most people don't because if you aren't really comfortable with your autonomic functions then they will rule you it's better that you can work with them and maybe have a small measure of control over them and then see what happens because when the autonomic functions rule us then we are a slave to our narrative but when we can begin to override our autonomic functions then our narrative becomes a little bit um, more amorphous we can move a, a little away from this feeling of you know i exist because i breathe well you might exist if you're not breathing for a while too i exist because i eat well you also exist if you don't eat and who will you be if you go through the you know the suffering of fasting for a day or three weeks or whatever it might be and, or i exist because you know i have sexual relationships with people well who will you be if like you don't indulge in that so the yogis were using all these different types of practices to transcend autonomic functions which things that lock us into our narrative so when we talk about being stuck in a narrative for a tribe that's quite often related to this. survival yeah. and survival is what happens in our autonomic functions our brainstem mainly is working to keep us alive that's its job and the yogi said okay fine now what if i transcend those functions who will i be then and then they access higher level brain functions so that happens in the next step which is pratyahara the withdrawal of the sense organs because we operate on an autonomic level um in believing the information coming in through the sense organs as well so we tie those two things together number one i'm a heart beating breathing person that's who i am and then number two the things i see in front of me in the world are real and so i'm going to accept that as my reality and treat it as though it is reality when obviously it isn't it's just what our brain is constructing reality so we give in to the sense organs meaning what i see what i smell what i taste what i hear and what i touch that's real that's the world and the yogis say that's not real that's that's not the world uh that's a construction of it and if you want to know who you really are you have to stop believing the construction your brain is telling you is the world so you need to pull your your awareness that is mixed in with the sense organs unmix those two so your sense organs become quiet for a while and instead of your awareness moving outwards your awareness can now rest inwards so you you control to a certain degree your automatic functions so you're comfortable with them and then you pull your awareness away from getting lost in the senses or as deepak chopra says getting lost in the superstition of the sense organs and then at that point you're ready to begin concentrating and that's the next limb where i can say okay now i'm not lost in the world i'm not lost in narrative 
created by my survival functions, my clinging to life through the survival functions. But now I can begin to focus my mind, whatever that is. And that's where concentration or dhatana starts. Where you say, okay, I'm going to keep my mind here. I'm going to keep my mind here. I'm going to keep my mind here. I'm not going to let it go away. And then that turns into meditation, which is the steady flow of your awareness towards the object that you're meditating upon. And then that steady flow of awareness, which has been created through the discipline of keeping your mind fixed, that steady flow then loses itself in that object. So if it's on the breath or a mantra or it's on the sense of being, that's the only thing that then exists for you and nothing else. Okay, and so that is the stage of samadhi or absorption where the, the field of awareness takes on the form of that which you are meditating upon and there's no distinction between the two. Um, and that's the eighth limb of yoga. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. And actually, it makes me wonder then, so for your book, what made you decide to investigate yoga and, you know, uh, science and how they intersect, you know, the benefits through the lens of science? What brought you there? Well, what brought me there was that um, I've been doing research with a colleague of mine, Marshall Hagens, for the past few years. And it's through him that my interest in science really grew. Um, the, um, you know, I was curious as to why yoga seemed to work. And I was curious as why it seemed to work, no matter what kind of yoga people did. So my supposition or my premise was that, you know, it wasn't even a supposition, but it was that if you just randomly grab some people off the street and you say to them, do you do yoga? And they say, yes. And you say to them, well, how does it make you feel? What are the benefits? What are some of the things you think people would say? Uh, feel less stressed, more present, more relaxed, happier, lighter. Yeah, maybe. But And now you know, like, you know, the basic things. And they also might say, I feel a little more flexible. Uh, my body's a little stronger. Uh, maybe I can self-regulate more. All those things. And so everyone who does yoga says that. All of those things, no matter what kind of yoga they do. So if it's Iyengar yoga, Kundalini yoga, Ashtanga yoga, Bikram yoga, Shivananda yoga, integral yoga, whatever kind of yoga it is, they all say the same thing. I thought, well, how is this possible? Like, why is all these different modalities giving the same effects? And I thought, well, that's very unique and that's kind of cool. And that's what I investigated in the book. Um, not too long ago, I came across a study done by a scientist named Holger Kramer from Germany. He'll be mm -hmm. speaking at the next yoga and science conference that we hold in Stockholm in February. He did a meta-analysis of um, 302 different yoga studies. Um, they were all RCTs, randomized controlled trials. And of these 277 of them, he found positive results that were basically all along the same lines. And they were studying 52 different types of yoga and meditation. Wow. So 52 different types of yoga and meditation, 302 studies, 277 of them show positive, similar reporting. So uh -huh. what their conclusion of the, the study was, and I wished I had seen the study before I wrote my book, that, um, or their conclusion was that 
yoga works. It gives positive outcomes. And the type of yoga you do is based on two things. Number one, preference. And number two, availability. So whatever is local to you and you end up doing, it's probably going to work. And even if it's a video on YouTube, probably going to work. Uh, most of the injuries that come from yoga come from unsupervised practice, by the way. So when people are talking about yoga injuries, most of them are from unsupervised practice. Uh, yoga in controlled settings with knowledgeable teachers, the incidence of injury uh, is much less and accidents. I was going to actually ask you about that. Do you recommend if somebody's beginning a practice to start with a teacher versus online using an online video? Yeah, I think that if you have a teacher accessible to you, go to a teacher. Make sure you like them. If you're not too sure if you like the teacher, you don't need to go back to the class. If something about the teacher makes you uncomfortable, you don't need to go back just because they say they're a yoga teacher. So if you're if you're able to try out a few different teachers, I recommend doing that until you find one that is suitable for you. And if your first class, you hit the jackpot, then that's great too. Yeah. What about somebody, because I know many, I have friends who've been practicing 10, 20 years. I mean, been doing it. Where should they be thinking about taking their practice? Because, you know, you talked earlier about you can get really into doing it right. And, you know, I can hold this for so long and maybe just getting into perfectionism versus what the, the heart of yoga is about. So what advice would you give someone like that? Well, what I do with myself is that because um, I spent a lot of years getting good at postures. And um, so what I try to do with myself now is that the, as I'm beginning my practice, I, I feel all of these different layers of me. And I remember that I'm like one thing that, it, you know, when I'm when I'm practicing, I'm just not moving my body, meaning my muscles and my my skeleton and things like that. But I have all these organs and. I have this blood flow and I have oxygen moving and energy and I have awareness and that as I'm doing poses, there is this whole expression of life flowing through me and flowing through everyone, of course. And what I try to do is I try to feel that expression of life and that impulse to move and the impulse to know and all of that to be present with me as I'm practicing postures so that I'm, I become aware of my whole kind of being or existence in the pose and not just what's happening with the muscle, um, okay. not just what's you know happening with the sensation, but how is everything becoming like a, con a, a continuum of experience in the pose? So I try to do that as much as possible. And, um, and sometimes, you know, you do challenging poses in order to challenge your ability to, um, move your awareness to the different parts of your body where the stress of the pose is not. So say you are staying for in a headstand for a long time and your arms are getting tired or your shoulders are, that maybe you move all your awareness, what's happening in my legs and in my toes and in between my fingers and what's happening with my blood flow and my circulation and you know the changes that I'm noticing. So you feel all these different subtle levels. So, you know, that's a basic part of the teaching of yoga. A lot of people are, are teaching like that and practicing like that. And um, the moving of our awareness to different parts of the body while we practice and different layers of the body while we practice is an integral part of it. So I think that when we do that, then, you know, we're doing yoga. And if we're just doing poses, then we're just doing poses. 
Um, if we're just struggling to get a pose, we're just struggling to get a pose. It's, you might as well struggle to get like, you know, could be a new pair of shoes or it could be like a fancy car or it could be like, you know, uh, responsibility in whatever field you're working in. It's just getting something. Um, we're working on being something. So I try to use my yoga practice to be present with all of the different things that make up this form that I only see from the outside. Like, because, you know, we, um, we don't see what's happening on the inside of us. Uh, we only see the outside of us. It's really beautiful, actually. It's really beautiful. And actually, um, I had met you when you had come to San Diego and I had told you, so I wore a back brace for scoliosis for six years. So from the ages of 10 to 16, I was in something that really can talk about not being able to use what is breath pranayama. Right. I can use my breath. And so when I come to yoga, I love it. And I, and part of me wishes I had stayed with it when I was younger and kind of worked with it. Cause as you get older, you get a little more rigid and your body's a little stiffer. And so I appreciate what you just said, because I'm thinking even for those of us who are beginners or who have back pain or whatever, to just have compassion and gentleness and just bring that awareness, even as we are struggling maybe to get into just the most basic position, which is kind of where I'm at, you know, it's just, you know. I think yoga is essentially a practice of awareness, Um, awareness of the body, awareness of the breath, the nervous system, your internal organs. Uh, the movement of energy in your body, like we are energetic beings. Sometimes we have low energy, sometimes high energy. So to get in touch with that energetic flow, not in like a woo kind of a way, but very practically, we're electromagnetic, you know, energetic beings. And to sense that, to feel that, because then we can maximize it when we need to. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's very important to move. Um, cause our bodies are constantly moving throughout the day. We have peristalsis, we have heartbeat, we have respiration, we have uh, transport of oxygen, um, you know, glucose changes. We are mo- dynamic moving beings. And the more we move in healthy considered ways, the more we support the healthy movement of this living dynamic body that we are, are, uh, so. Absolutely. So, yeah, so this is an important reason for, for moving, for sure. Absolutely. So I wanted to just ask you just a couple more questions. So your book goes into so many of the benefits. I mean, everything from brain health to uh, reduction of stress, which impacts everything. Um, you touched upon something, though, that I wasn't as familiar with, which is the um, vagus. Is it the vagus nerve? Yep, the vagus nerve. Yeah, can you tell us more about that and the impacts of yoga in a positive way on um, controlling the vagus nerve or helping to control the vagus nerve? Uh, the vagus nerve has become a huge topic of conversation in the health fields over the past 10 years or so, largely because of the work of Dr. Stephen Porges. He proposed something called the polyvagal theory. And uh, But the vagus nerve has been studied for a long time, starting with Darwin, and he called it the nerve of emotion. And the vagus is important for a bunch of things. Number one, it controls inflammation in the body, and inflammation is responsible for, or over-inflammation, is responsible for 95% of the preventable diseases we have in the world today, including cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, uh, irritable bowel syndrome and anxiety. So all of these and many others are associated with high levels of inflammation in the body. 
Uh, if we can reduce inflammation, we can reduce the incidences of these types of diseases. Um, so what does the vagus do? It travels from a little bit above the brainstem and it comes down through the uh, trachea, through the larynx, into the heart, into the lungs, into the diaphragm, into the spleen, into the liver, into the stomach, and into the intestines. So for a cranial nerve, this is odd and unusual because most cranial nerves only go to places from the shoulders above. In fact, that's what the other 11 cranial nerves do. You have nerves going to the eyes, to the controlling the corners of the eyes, to the um, olfactory bulbs, to the facial muscles, to the ears, to the neck. Um, that's basically what the cranial nerves are doing. They're innervating those areas. Uh, but the vagus travels to all these visceral organs below the neck. So it's odd. So what it does is it acts as this bidirectional communication center um, or transport system from the body up to the brain and then from the brain down to the body. And we want those that communication to be smooth and open so that the brain can hear the signals that the body is telling it. What's the condition of the intestines? How's the heart rate going? Is the diaphragm working properly? Is the liver working properly? Uh, is there something that needs to be managed somehow? Uh, the heart rate is controlled by the vagus nerve as well. The, um, there are, from the right vagus, I believe, coming down to the SA node in the upper right chamber of the heart, is where the activity of the slowing and the speeding of the heart rate occurs in conjunction with inhale and exhale. And this is called the vagal break. So as we inhale, the vagal break releases and the heart speeds up. As we exhale, uh, the vagal break presses down and the heart slows down. This is to um, support the absorption of oxygen as the blood rushes into the heart and then is transported through the body. Uh, the vagal break is the, well, and also the slowing and speeding of the heart rate means that there's a change in our heart rate each time it beats. Sometimes a little slower, sometimes a little faster, and this is called heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is also uh, a big topic these days um, for uh, performance athletes and things like that. You know, if they want to measure their performance capabilities and their recovery time and all that, they're going to look at their heart rate variability, which you can measure through simple apps and test bands and things like that. And it, what it, the heart rate variability is showing you is a measure of the function of your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, which are part of the autonomic nervous system. And if you are have like low heart rate variability, that means that your sympathetic nervous system is going to be in hyperarousal, more cortisol and adrenaline being released on a regular basis, and that's not a good recovery time or a good time to do a lot of intensive exercise practice or training. Uh, when we have very high heart rate variability, that means that the you know the the functions of sympathetic and parasympathetic are balanced, and the parasympathetic activity is going to lead you to rest, repair, and restoration, which is very important for recovery, of course. Now, one of the ways that we measure vagal tone to see is the vagus nerve doing the things that it needs to do, is information flow happening properly, is through heart rate variability. So if the heart is speeding up on the inhale, slowing down on the exhale, we know that the vagus nerve is applying the right influence through along with the breath. And that's what the vagal break is. If 
there's not high heart rate very heart rate variability, but it's a low heart rate variability. That means that the vagal break is not working or it's temporarily impaired. And therefore there's something happening in the autonomic nervous system, which needs to be looked at. Maybe cardiovascular disease, maybe not enough sleep, maybe really poor diet, maybe a lot of stress, any of those types of things. So we look at heart rate variability to see a picture of the autonomic nervous system. And specifically, we're looking at the um, tone of the vagus nerve and is it doing what it needs to. Now, why do we want all these measures to be good? Because we want low inf inflammation levels in the body. That's going to be helpful for us. Uh, we want less of these diseases. But also, the vagus nerve isn't just um, controlling things below the neck, but it's also connecting with nuclei in the face facial muscles and in the larynx. So below the neck, we're going to be dealing with things um, that are uh, physiological and above the neck we're going to be dealing with things that are emotional and social engagement so when the vagus nerve is toned then i can modulate my tone of voice to express different emotions a full range of emotion and i can also change my facial expression to exhibit joy or happiness or disgust or anger or whatever it might be and if your vagus nerve is toned then you can read my facial expressions and you can know what i'm feeling and you can also read my tone of voice and you'll know oh he's very happy or oh he's not so happy and then that's how you know how to respond to me so a toned vagus will allow us to express emotion and read emotion and respond appropriately a low toned vagus will allow us not allow us to do that it will prevent us from properly expressing through vocal tone and facial expression what it is we're trying to convey or make it harder for us to read what other people are feeling, or it leads to flat affect, like you see in kids who are on spectrum and things like that. Um, so that's, um, that's a little bit about the vagus nerve. The, Stephen Porges wrote a book called The Polyvagal Theory, which discusses uh, the, the, the three predictable responses that the vagus nerve has to environmental demands, which are gonna be safety, pro-social engagement, that's uh, above the neck, and then fight or flight when there's perceived threat and we need to do something about it. That's the dominance of the sympathetic nervous system. And then last is um, below the diaphragm, which is immobilization, um, where protection of life, severe threat to life, where we immobilize and we shut down. And that's the third branch of, of the vagus nerve as well. Um, so these are highly related to yoga because they're, you know, Stephen Porges has identified four practices that are actually found in different religions that are going to help tone the vagus nerve. And the ones that he identified were, number one, postures, because they help to balance blood pressure, especially in uh, stimulating the baroreceptors that wrap around the carotid arteries. And then number two, breathing, because rhythmic breathing sends signals of rhythmicity and steadiness from the abdominal vagal afferents up to the brain and saying everything is rhythmic, everything is okay. And then the next is vocalization, whether it's Tuvan throat chanting or Gregorian chants or Tibetan chanting or Hindu mantras or, um, you know, the Christian gospels or whatever it might be. Um, all of these are going to be massaging for the vagus nerve in the larynx. Uh, and so the tonality. Singing too? Singing too? Singing also. But, you know, a lot of it has to do with, um, uh, you know, I don't know about like pop singing or, you know, stuff like that. I'm going to assume that's also good. But all the, uh, the 
quote unquote, mystic or spiritually oriented singing or sounds seem to be geared towards some type of vagal stimulation. That's fascinating, actually. Because, because they're rhythmic and a lot of them are non-symbolic too. So we deal with non-symbolic sounds. We're dealing with tone and frequency and pattern and resonance and re resonance. That's the word that came to my head. Yeah. Resonance, vibration. Yeah. And not so much meaning. And so straight to meaning, then what if we're singing, but it's a violent song, then that's anger and anxiety disrupt vagal tone. So therefore it won't, but kindness, appreciation, and gratitude, um, strengthen and support vagal tone. So, um, the, uh, the next thing after vocalization is behavior which is what I just said, that they found appreciation are going to support vagal tone and anger and anxiety are going to disrupt vagal tone. So if we go back to your earlier question of what are the limbs of Ashtanga Yoga, the first four limbs have to do with number one, behavior, number two, your own discipline, number three, postures, number four, breathing. And so the first four limbs, and also in the second limb of yoga, that's where chanting and vocalization comes into play with swadhyaya, um, study of mantras and repetition of mantras. So the first four limbs of Ashtanga Yoga exactly mirror the four neural exercises of Stephen Porges. So basically, our preparatory practices are to strengthen vagal tone, to become integrated pro-social human beings so that we can then move to deeper levels of awareness. I can't tell you how much I've loved this conversation. It's so fascinating to me, and I love your book so much. I'm aware of time. I just just really want to talk about your breathing app quickly because it's so wonderful. I use it all the time. It's so helpful. Can you just tell us more about the um, the breathing app just quickly? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Uh, the breathing app is a free app available on iTunes and Google Play, and it is called The Breathing App. And it's a type of breathing called resonance breathing. And what the app does is it helps to guide you in a paced breath. Normally, we breathe 15 to 18 breaths per minute. And with the breathing app, we're slowing our breath down to about five to seven breaths per minute. And what this does is it acts as a reset for the resiliency of our nervous system, our ability to bounce back to find center again. And um, wonderful things can happen from doing this you know, for about 10 to 20 minutes a day for five weeks, you can really begin to downregulate your sympathetic nervous system. So the tendency we have to perceive threat where no threat exists, that's like the driver of, of our society right now. 24-hour news channels and alerts on our phones and all this stuff is designed to keep us in a state of high alert. And that's why people are getting anxiety and why they're not sleeping well and having poor digestion and, you know, getting into arguments that they don't need to get into beat with people. Um, it's because of this overactivation. And so what we want to do is downregulate that and let the parasympathetic nervous system, which is restoration, repair, and connection, become more predominant. And so basically that's what happens with resonance breathing if you do it every day for about five weeks. And then after that, you can just do it for a couple of minutes a day and keep up with those effects. So what we wanted to do was create a, a free app that would allow people to do that and would also help to free people a little bit from needing to use technology to self-regulate so that once you establish the rhythm within you of five weeks, then you don't really need to use the app anymore because, you know, you still have that rhythm within you. If you want to use the app, of course you can, but um, you also have the ability that wherever you are during the day, you can 
recenter yourself because you've established a new rhythm within you over those weeks of practice. And that's what practice does. Any regular practice and the importance of practice is that it establishes a new rhythm within us so that we have a new habit of awareness, a new pattern of self-regulation that is going to become stronger over time than the old habits that we had that take us away from where we want to be, that bring us into overreactivity or, um, you know, or stuff like that. Absolutely. And are you doing a new app? Did I read that? A new? Are you doing a new one coming out in January? Yes. In January, I have an app coming out called Yoga 365. And um, what that app will do is, I'll get some light in here. The, um, yeah, please. <laughs> the Yoga 365 uh, will send you a one to two minute long movement video every day. Some simple things like breathing and inhaling your arm up over your head a few times. Um, And so four days a week, you'll get a different movement. One day a week of breathing practice and one day a week of meditation or inspirational thought. And then on one of those days on Saturday, all of the movement practices are linked together in a longer video. So the idea behind it is how can we begin to incorporate micro practices into the day that can bring us back to a state of present awareness not everyone has the ability to go to an hour and a half long yoga class three times a week or even one time a week. For many people, it's unattainable. You have too many kids or too many jobs or there's no yoga around you or you just don't have the time. So one of the things that I was interested in with the breathing app and with the Yoga 365 is how can we do really simple, easily accessible practices that can be done anywhere without a yoga mat um, you know, and all you need is a couple of minutes to do it just to recenter yourself. And so that's the idea. Uh, It launches uh, on January 1st. It's just called Yoga 365. It is a paid app. It's Mm -hmm. $3.99 per month. So not a whole lot of money. Not at all. Thank you for creating that. I'll be linking those in the show notes for sure. I always wrap up with this last question, which is, can you leave the women listening with your three best tips on living a good life? Oh, um, well... Generally speaking, uh, my best and smartest tip for leading a good life is to listen to the women in my life. (laughs) They're going to need to play that for their husbands now. That's great. That's number one, two, and three. Oh, I love that. You're so fun. I love your your sense of humor and your passion and your book. So this has been such a pleasure. I will tell you, you wrote at the end that if this book makes one person want to do yoga, it's a success. So you're looking at one person who's really going to start re-engaging with yoga again. So you, <laughs> here's your success story right here. So thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and your work, Eddie? Where can I direct them? Um, EddieStern.com is my website. And on Instagram, I'm at Eddie Stern. That's the only social media I use. And, um, and that's it. Those two places. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. This has been really fun. I loved today's conversation and I hope that you did as well and that you walked away with some new information that's useful for you in your life. I found that the depth of knowledge that Eddie has and his willingness to share it and make it interesting and accessible is really such a gift. So all of the show notes can be found at thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 054. I have a link there to his book as well as to the breathing app 
Thanks so much for tuning in today, and I look forward to reconnecting next Wednesday. Bye for now.